chosen by God. Every one of us has been chosen by God, and that is an incredible blessing. Today we're going to be looking at what I believe to be the most dramatic of conversion stories in all of the Bible, and that is the Apostle Paul. Uh, At the time, his name was Saul, and uh, he was about as big of an enemy of God and his church, the Bride of Christ, as anyone could be. But God got his attention, and because Paul was willing to respond and to accept God's choosing of him, uh, God was able to redirect him and use him in powerful ways uh, for his kingdom and, and the church. Now, in this series, we've looked at how God has chosen us and how he is the one who changes us and equips us for his service. And in each one of those cases, and it's certainly true today, uh, it it requires that the chosen choose to submit to him. To say that God redirects his enemies, well, that's only if those enemies submit to him and surrender to him. Uh, And Paul definitely did so. If you've already accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you've been baptized into him, my prayer for you today is that you'll reflect on your rebirth experience and that you'll be thankful uh, for those who played an integral part in helping you make those personal decisions and that you'll be thinking of people uh, to whom you can play a similar role. If you're not already a follower of Jesus, my prayer for you today is that you'll finally get off the fence That you'll make today the day that you choose to surrender. To not be saved is to be lost. To not be a friend of God is to be an enemy of God. You're either for him or you're against him. He demands us to be nothing less than radically sold out to him. Are you born again or are you not born again? There's no sort of born again. Choosing sides. It's up to you, the chosen, to choose which one you're on. And like Paul, we need the following four things. Every one of us in our spiritual lives, in our rebirth experience, we need these following four things. And Saul had them on the most dramatic uh, scale. Number one, we all need a Jesus encounter. In Acts, the ninth chapter, we have a a descriptive um, picture of the Apostle Paul's surrender to Christ. Uh, We get to see him uh, submit to Christ, answer the call, and be sent off to prepare for ministry. So if you have your scriptures there with you, if you want to read from the screen, uh, if you want to read from your smartphone, if you've got a Bible app, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6 says this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. If you have the ability there to still have that passage on verse 1, Reread that with me if you have access to it. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Saul, still breathing threats 
and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was still in the process of that when God got his attention in our story today. And I am one that firmly believes that God has, when he has chosen you, it's not because you've gotten good enough. It's not because you've learned enough of the scriptures. It's because he sees the potential of what you can become for his kingdom. And he redirects his paths, your path. I certainly see that in, in my own life as well. Never in my wildest imaginations, in my junior high years and high school years, would I have ever imagined that I'd be going to church, that I'd be accepting Christ, that I would get heavily involved, that I would go off to seminary, and that I would become a, a, a pastor. I, I just that, that blows my mind. And the older you get and you look back on things, small chunks of time don't seem as significant in the grand scheme of your, of your life. And you think, wow, so within nine months, Bible college, within three years preaching in, in, in a church, and I think about the people that poured into my life and the trust that was given to me. Saul was still breathing threats against the Lord and his disciples. Make no mistake about it. He is not, you know, someone who just sort of kind of believes that Jesus is the Christ. He is anti-church, anti-Christian, anti-the way, as, as the early church was, was called. He was one bad dude with a lot of power, a lot of influence. He loved the, the one true God, he was very zealous about his faith in, in the one true God, and he saw Christianity as a threat to that. So, I mean, his heart was in the right place, but he did not see that Jesus was the Son of God. He did not see him as his Lord and Savior, and, and he wanted to stamp out Christianity. Now, most people, I would think, in his shoes would be happy enough just to run all the Christians off, run them out of town, get them out of Jerusalem. But that wasn't enough for Saul. Saul got a warrant for their arrest to go the 140-mile distance from Jerusalem to Damascus to bind them up and to bring them back and to put them on trial for their faith, which most likely would lead to a death sentence for each, each one of them. Rome permitted the Jewish Sanhedrin to oversee the affairs of the Jewish people. And certainly this would be uh, an affair of the Jewish people. If you've got uh, a group of folks who are in the synagogue, they're in Damascus, in the place where they're worshiping the one true God, and they're practicing what some believe to be heresy, a false religion as such. And if the Jewish people, if the Sanhedrin deemed it necessary, go get them, bring them back. Rome said, have at it. And Paul had all of the necessary paperwork, the warrants for their arrest, and he went that 140-mile distance. He was well on his way to Damascus when Jesus got his attention. The voice was fully understandable to Saul, the voice of Jesus. Though Acts 22 indicates that the other men only heard it but were unable to comprehend that message. This is a dramatic scene. This is no... Uh, backwoods, uneducated person. I mean, Saul was schooled by Gamaliel. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee, like an Old Testament professor or, or like a, an attorney or a lawyer. He had studied it. He knew it inside and out. You couldn't find a more devout follower of God and a man who was a true leader in every way than Saul. And so this bright light shines around him from heaven. 
brighter than the sun, it says. Every time I read a passage of Scripture, something new jumps out at me for the first time. I knew it was a bright light. I knew it was pretty intense. But I had not ever noticed that it says brighter than the sun itself. Brighter than the sun itself is the appearance of Jesus. One of the qualifications to be an apostle was that you had to have been personally in the presence of Jesus. And Paul refers to himself as one untimely call. Jesus has already died. He's been buried. He's risen again. He spent his time here on earth, and, and he's risen uh, into heaven. And so Saul's missed that opportunity, but now that, that opportunity revisits him, and this bright light knocks this manly man down to the ground and all of the men who are with him. He had a Jesus encounter. The light blinded his physical eyes, and God got his attention. Has God gotten your attention? We all have varying levels of drama to our testimonies. And my guess is that none of us has seen a light or so bright or heard the audible voice of Jesus thundering from the heavens, but hopefully you've had a Jesus encounter. That moment in time when God gets your attention and stops you in your track. A time when you've pulled over on the side of life's highway and turned on your spiritual hazard lights. <laughs> and the journey halts because God has gotten your attention. Was it when you were maybe in the midst of a crisis? Medically or financially, socially in some way with family? And you were broken. C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And you can look back on that moment in time, and it was your worst nightmare, something you would have never wanted, never invited, but that was your Jesus encounter moment because that's when God got your attention and you finally listened to his voice. Was it when you had blown it big time and gotten yourself into more trouble than you could get yourself out of and you knew you needed someone bigger than you? Was it an intellectual moment when information and research from God's word clicked? Was it a sermon or a week at church camp or CIY? Was it a revival in which finally you had your Jesus encounter moment and, and you understood who he was in such a way that you could make an intelligent decision to submit to him? Was it a conversation maybe with a grandparent or a youth coach? And you can look back to that day and time or that season in your life, that Jesus encounter in which things finally started to click for you and you decided, maybe not right then and there, maybe not in that moment, but that was the moment when the seed of the gospel germinated, when it finally sprouted and you were on your way to a strong faith. What was your Jesus encounter? If you were to ask the Apostle Paul what was his Jesus encounter, he would point you right back here to Acts chapter 9. In fact, he had that opportunity uh, later on in Acts 22 to tell his testimony, and he, and he goes through the whole thing all over again. And, and in Galatians chapter 1, he tells about it uh, in, in detail, and we'll look at that here in a little bit later as well. So number one, we need a Jesus encounter. Number two, we need a humble obedience, maybe the hardest part. Acts chapter 9, verses 7 through 9 says this. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. 
And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Numbers are a big deal in Scripture. I believe these were a literal three days for him, by the way. But it's interesting how many times you'll see repetitive numbers. Jesus uh, was in the grave for three days. Jonah was in the belly of the, of the great sea creature for three days. And, and, and here you have Saul wandering around physically blind for three days. This leader of leaders, led by the hands of others, humbled and unable to see. He was blinded by the bright light, the presence of Jesus himself, and the blindness would last until right after his acceptance and baptism into Christ when something like scales fall from his his eyes. Sometimes a Jesus encounter requires people to at least temporarily lose one thing that is keeping them from seeing Jesus. I had a pastor friend I always looked up to that would tell me sometimes, he'd say, anytime somebody says, in order to be saved, do I have to, and whatever it is, fill in the blank, he'd always tell them yes, no matter what the answer was. Because he says, if they're asking that question, then that means that's their one thing between them and submitting to Christ. Now, I don't know that he followed that literally in every answer, but the point is clear. If you're asking God, now, if if I want to be saved, do I have to do such and such, such and such, such and such? Then that means there's a compartment in your life in which you're still on the throne. And you want to protect that little part, and you've not fully humbled yourself. And for Paul, for Saul, with his physical eyes, he probably never would have ever humbled himself and submitted to God. He had to be physically blinded temporarily so that he could see Jesus. And I don't know what that is for each of us. Later on in life, he talked about having a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Something that God uses in every situation, every pain that we have, we should always examine it and ask ourselves, God, how do you want to use this for your glory, for your kingdom? God doesn't cause bad things to happen to us, but when he allows them to happen, those are our opportunities to really shine for him and for his his glory. Saul blinded, could finally see who Jesus really was. And that hindrance, his physical eyesight, out of the way, he was led to Damascus, humbly willing to follow Jesus. I like it when the question is asked, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? (laughs) I've said before, that line reminds me so much of the Batman movies of the late 1980s. You know, like when I was in high school and Batman came out, it was a big deal. I love that scene, the opening of the movie, when Batman is holding one of the bad guys out over a skyscraper building and his legs are kind of dangling, the guy's scared, and, and, and he goes, please don't kill me. And, and Batman says, I'm not going to kill you. And he goes, who are you? And he goes, I'm Batman. <laughs> Tell all your friends about me. <laughs> And then he brings him back and he heads on his way. And that is so, I think that, I think that the Hollywood producers got that from this scene because it's so similar. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And God doesn't strike him dead after getting his attention, after his Jesus encounter, and after his humble obedience to it. He says, go, and it'll be told you what you must do. And you know what Saul did? Saul went. <laughs> Wouldn't you? <laughs> I don't care how big of a big shot you are. <laughs> When you are knocked to the ground by the physical light of Jesus himself and you hear his audible voice, you kind of tend to do that. I've never heard the audible voice of Jesus. My guess is neither have you. 
I've never seen a miraculous bright light so bright that it knocks me to the ground. My guess is neither have you. But you've had your moment, and you have the scriptures that result from these miracles in the New Testament, and God's already gotten our attention, and it's up to us to humbly uh, be obedient. Anyone who's not a follower of Jesus is an enemy of Jesus. Um, when this blindness of Paul's was suspended, he could see more clearly what had been veiled all along. You're either all in or you're all out. Just like we learned in the series of the letters written to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor from the book of Revelation, uh, the church at Laodicea was lukewarm. And Jesus makes the bold statement, I wish they were either hot or cold. But since they are lukewarm, I'll spew them out of my mouth like lukewarm water. I wish that they were cold instead of lukewarm. Imagine Jesus saying to you, I wish you were all out instead of just sort of in. If you're a born-again follower of Christ, you, you used to be an enemy of Jesus before you accepted him as your Savior. Listen to these three, verse, uh, three passages of Scripture. James 4, 6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 138.6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. And 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the, in the proper time he may exalt you. That word antitacitai uh, means to be an, in complete battle with like you would an enemy. Opposition. Doesn't mean God just doesn't care for it. <laughs> it means to be an enemy of his. And who, who is that enemy? The proud, the boastful, the arrogant, those who can't seem to humble themselves, those who are going to be their own saviors and be good enough to try to earn their own ways into heaven, are the very ones in which he opposes if somebody ever tells you, you know, I'd go to church, but I just don't want to be a hypocrite, <laughs> say, let them know that's what the church is for. <laughs> the, the, the people who are the true hypocrites are the ones that don't come in because they don't think they need it. They're like a sick person refusing to go to the doctor or to the hospital. That's a hypocrite, you know. You don't go to the hospital and see someone in the ER suffering from chest pains and go, what are you doing here? Everybody can see you're not well. You say, no, that's where they're supposed to be. That's why the hospital exists. And the, the called, the assembly, the body of Christ, you and me, the congregation, the family of God, we come together on the first day of each week to say, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. I've got all kinds of flaws. I've got issues, man. And we all say to each other, and so do I. Let's, let's go in together. The Lord's Supper. It's for all of those who believe that they are imperfect and that Jesus is perfect and that he is their Savior and the only salvation known to man. And that's what that feast is for. It's a way of acknowledging and saying, I am not perfect, but he is. And I know I'm going to spend eternity with him. Not because I'm good enough, but because my sins have been washed whiter than snow, just as, as I am we often think of fear 
as being the primary reason that people put off responding to God. We think they lack the courage to confess with their mouths Jesus is Lord to be baptized, but I think maybe pride is a bigger threat than fear to a person's ability to accept Christ. It's a rather humbling process, isn't it? Nothing proud or boastful about surrendering. You have to admit that you're not perfect, that you can't earn your way to salvation. You have to admit you believe in someone that you cannot see with your physical eyes. Seems like intellectual suicide. You have to admit to having feelings of sorrow over sin and a spiritual fervor for Jesus. You have, to, uh, you have to surrender that pride. And I think that's especially hard for us guys. <laughs> and we don't like for people to see us being emotional or expressing our feelings. And then there's the humble process of allowing someone to baptize us by fully immersing us underwater. Our eyes closed, our lungs not taking in air, and our hairdos in big trouble. <laughs> and to come up out of that water soaking wet, whether it's here in a church building, or in a creek, a pond, a river, church camp swimming pool, it's a humbling act. And all of that takes humility. Someone pointed out that baptism is the least work of all that we are asked to do in Scripture and commanded to do when it comes to salvation, because I can't believe for you. There are a lot of people I've wished I could believe for, especially sincere skeptics. I wish I could believe for them. I can't repent for you. You're the only one that can turn around and say, I'm no longer going to belong to me. I'm going to belong to Jesus. You alone can make that decision. I can't confess your faith for you. Only you can call on the name of the Lord and admit that he is your Savior, but I can baptize you. <laughs> it's the only thing you can't do yourself unless you're really talented. <laughs> Someone else has to do it for you. What a perfect example of our new birth in Christ. Death of your sin, new birth in Him, something that He has done for you. His death, His burial, His resurrection takes a Jesus encounter. It takes a humble obedience. It also takes a willing evangelist. I tried to wordsmith that one. I thought nobody uses the word evangelist anymore. What word should I use for that? <laughs> a witness, an example, a proclaimer. I came up with all kinds of goofy things. And finally, you know what? I landed back on the word evangelist. And I thought maybe the reason we got some of the problems we've got today in Christianity is because we aren't being evangelists. And it's not an option. It's not a, hey, if you think about it, you might want, if, you, if it matches your gift set, you ought to try to make disciples. No, we are called to be evangelists. We are called to multiply ourselves. We're not called to stay in the holy huddle or be in the, the safety of the lifeboat. We're, we're, we're called to go out and to rescue the perishing like we used to sing about it. It's an important thing. It takes a willing evangelist. Acts 9, verses 10 through 15 says this. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Verse 13. Just as Paul's physical eyesight might have prevented him from seeing who Jesus is, Ananias' physical hearing was kind of keeping him from being a willing evangelist. What he says to the Lord is, I have heard. (laughs) Don't ever question the Lord. If he does speak to you audibly and he says, this is what I want you to do, you say, on it. (laughs) You don't say, whoa, wait a minute, Lord, I have heard. (laughs) I don't think that's a good choice on your part. Well, this Saul of Tarsus that you speak of, he is the greatest threat to the church there is. In fact, he's on his way here and he's got written paperwork from the chief priest and he's going to bind up and shackle up everybody he can find and he's going to haul them back to Jerusalem and put them on trial. You don't want him. You don't want me to share the good news with him. You don't want me to tell him what he must do and you certainly don't want me to baptize him. Oh, no, 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 not him. Let's pick a different demographic, Lord. Let's go over what you're thinking here. Never presume on the Lord's plan. The Lord tells Ananias, you go to Straight Street, you go to such and such a house, and you wait, and this man's on his way, and when he gets there, this is what I want you to do. You tell him what he must do. I love the book of Acts. I always have it. It's my favorite book of the Bible. I I love the detail that's in there because it's a reminder that, hey, this stuff is real. These are real people and real, real geographic locations. And it certainly was that for Ananias. This was his opportunity. Imagine what would it have been like <laughs> to have been the guy that got to present the gospel to Saul of Tarsus and for him to go on and become an apostle and to write the majority of the New Testament after the gospels and to know that God used you for that. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Who was that in your life? When you think back to to your salvation experience? Was was it a grandparent? Was it a youth coach? Was it a a book that you read by a certain author? Who was it that, that God used? What willing evangelist was there in your lives? Ananias had knowledge of Saul's written permission, as I said, to bind up everyone, and that came from 140 miles away. This is before the internet. There's no social media. We don't have automated, uh, automatic trans, uh, transportation back then. No planes, trains, or automobiles. And yet they know Saul is coming. And one of the commentaries I read pointed out, you know, kind of the, the diversity there of reactions. They probably announced it. Want everybody to know Saul of Tarsus is coming with a group of guys. They're zealous for the Lord. When they get here, welcome them, give them a meal, treat them with hospitality. They're coming here to wipe out and clean up this place and get rid of all those people of the way. Those Christians, those Christ-like people, they're going to bind them up, they're going to take them back. And so you be really good to them. And I imagine there was a thunderous applause of all of the God-fearing people that didn't know that Jesus was the Christ. and Can't wait for them to get here. While at the same time, the Christians who were going to the synagogue there in Damascus and were there in person and hearing this announcement, their hearts probably pounded just about as loudly as the applause of those excited to see them. 
God sees potential in even the greatest of enemies, and he chose Saul to be saved, to be a disciple, to be an apostle, to author the majority of the New Testament and the gospel, and he's chosen you as well. Don't wait for your bright light from heaven. Don't wait for the audible voice of God to get your attention. He's given you all that you need to know and to believe, and it's time for some of us to get off of the fence, and it's time for some of us to be a little bit more responsive to God's call. One final thing, and that is we need a spiritual rebirth. Acts 9, 16 through 19 says this, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, called him brother here. I think the Lord got his attention. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you that you may regain your physical sight and then be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he arose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. You can go on and read later today if you want there the rest of the story of how he goes off and, and gets prepared for more deeply for God's call on his life. But that's how quickly he surrendered And how quickly things began to take root and to grow in his life. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. This is much later on in his ministry. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He says, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He was pleased to reveal his son to me, and he had a purpose in order that I would preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And God has a purpose for every one of us. And we've looked at a lot of broken, messed up people, and more to come in the scriptures, Bible characters, Not necessarily Bible heroes. Ordinary people, anti-Christian people like Paul. But God chose him. And God had a plan for him. And he does for every one of us as well. Our team is going to come and going to lead us uh, in a song. And I'll be right down front here. And if you have a decision for Christ today, I encourage you not to put that off another minute. Um, if you're already a born-again believer in Christ, you're looking for a church home, I encourage you to join this church family. There's no reason not to. (laughs) And for all of us, when we think about our, why we exist as a church, what we're called to do, be thinking of the people that you know who do not know Jesus. And what does it take for God to get your attention and say, go go to Straight Street, (laughs) You know, go to the house of Judas. Go wait for this Saul of Tarsus. Who is that? Don't question the Lord. Just respond. 
as we pray. Father God, I thank you so much for, for your son Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for his love and, and his call on us. I thank you, God, that we are chosen. I thank you, God, for our eternal, eternal salvation. But beyond that obvious blessing, God, I thank you for using us right now here on earth while we are here. Help us to make a difference, God. Help us to connect people to your son. Help us to communicate to everyone that they matter to you in such an incredible way, uh, Father, that they can see it with their spiritual eyes and want to be a part of it. God, we love you, and we worship you in this time. Have your own way, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.